Sunday Scaries. Hey, it's Sunday Scaries. It's a podcast about horror movies where each week we take the edge off by doing a deep dive into a particular movie and try to make connections between that movie and other movies within the genre. These are our dead air sessions where we discuss news and other topics related to the industry. I'm Travis, and I'm hanging out with Daniel out on the West Coast. What's and up? Boy, do we that have... That was the most West Coast what's up I've ever done in my life. I, I'm, not, I'm not really like that, Saw, dude. Uh, and boy, do we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, so first up on the list, uh, I'm going to go see it tonight. Insidious, The Red Door, released this weekend. Uh, how I forget, how many of the Insidious movies have you, have you seen, if any? Do you want the honest answer? I want the honest answer. Zero? Absolutely okay. Not. I've seen none. I feel like this is in the canon of James Wan franchises helmed by Patrick Wilson, which of which there are two. Um, I feel like this is the younger brother to the Conjuring universe in a way, but I feel like they're kind of better movies. Um, you've seen, I think we had to we cover one of the Conjuring movies yet. I can't, yeah, we covered we the third we one. We covered the devil made me do it. Right. The, the, like the worst one. The that Christian we, superheroes. God damn it. Yeah. The one that wasn't directed by James Wan, which it tends to happen. It's like, so between the Saw franchise, the Conjuring franchise and the Insidious franchise, um, Blumhouse has this thing of enlisting James Wan, or I guess it's it probably, this is, you know, reverse engineering what happened, but like James Wan kicking off these various, you know, universes and then passing them along to other directors um, or his co-writers in the case of Insidious. And in, in this case, uh, Patrick Wilson directing. Um, so Patrick Wilson coming on to direct a movie for the first time, um, which in, intrigues me. I'm really interested to see what the product is going to be of, uh, of the, the main actor and star of this franchise and other James Wan franchises deciding to jump in and direct. You have to think, too, is, like, coming into direct, you want somebody who's just been in the business as an actor a really long time. Like, right. they've, they've put in, like, the thousand hours or whatever on set as an actor to, like, have observed enough directors and editors and, like, all that stuff to be able to kind of, like, walk in and do it well. It's hard when it's, like, an early actor-director unless they're, like, that's what they want to be. Like, right. an actor does, like, four or five movies and you're like, great, I got this. Like, BJ Novak is, a, is like, an actor, writer, director, producer, the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. And, like, his efforts behind the camera have been mixed at best. And so right. it's, like, always tricky when, a, when an actor, like, takes, takes, you know, takes the reins um, and tries to, like, turn it into something. But Patrick Wilson's a G. I mean, yeah, people, he's been people in might it. not know who we're talking about, but he is, yeah. like, the guy. He's in everything. <laughs> he's, he's the guy. Yeah, he's great. I mean, he has the perfect face for, you know, being like his perfect leading man face in a way. I feel like he uh, when he first, you know, I first saw him in Watchmen for the the Zack Snyder adaptation of Alan Moore's comic from 2007, I think, um, where he played the owl, the like he was the the the, the Batman analog for the Watchmen universe, basically. Um, right. But he's been he's played Ed Warren for all of the Conjuring movies and for better or worse, like I, I actually do like, you know, I think in our episode when we covered The Conjuring 3, we shat on that movie a lot because it's not of the of that franchise. It's definitely not one of the better ones. But the franchise overall is pretty cool for, you know, even though it sort of glorifies two con people that were not really great people in real life and makes them beautiful with Vera Famiga and, and, and uh, Patrick Wilson. But he's he's good in those movies. Like, he's not, you know, he's a really good actor. And I think something interesting to me that I always think of whenever I see, like... Um, I've been catching this recently, especially on like uh, the Hot Ones interviews where, you know, Sean Evans interviews people and they eat chicken wings. And whenever there's an actor on there that sort of uh, 
I know one actor that, that I pointed out recently that I think is going to be an amazing director whenever they decide to start getting behind the camera is uh, Florence Pugh. Because whenever she like did her interview with Sean Evans, she did this thing where um, she started immediately sort of noting his physical mannerisms and like sort of immediately characterizing him in a like a very actor kind of way like like you know picking out his like little you know uh idiosyncrasies and and you know speaking um forms and i was like there's something about that with like actors who are so they're such like virtuosos of just mannerisms and personality and identifying the character traits that like define a human being. I'm like, once you get that person behind a camera and they start directing other people, I feel like they're going to be like amazing directors as well. Uh, you know what director had his debut and absolutely blew me away. And I was like, I was like, I can't wait to see every movie this, this actor makes. You're going to love one? this. It was, Which one? it was John Krasinski when he oh, directed yeah. the quiet place. Yeah. Yeah. I lost it. I was like, this is this might be one of the best creature features I've seen in, de- oh, in a sure. full-blown decade. And I can't wait to see whatever he works on. I've, inter- I've heard interviews, too. You can tell, too, because he's very humble. He's like, I didn't do... He's like, the people at, you know, ILM did all the hard work on, like, the monster. Like, we... then they went over. We didn't ask them to go over on that. They were just super jazzed to, like, do something that's not Star Wars. Right. Um, <laughs> but by the same token, like, Olivia Wilde knocked out of the park with Booksmart and then come back around on Don't Worry Darling. And yeah. there's, like... It's a hit... It's a hit-miss ratio. Nobody bats a thousand. I feel I'll like there's... That, I feel like that's also just the, the story legacy of... of... like... Yeah, the legacy of actors turned directors is such a mixed bag that it's always, like... You're, you're waiting with bated breath. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel I feel like there's also the the unfortunate just legacy of of production interference too, where it's like maybe actors get a first go around with like very little studio interference because it's sort of a, a maybe a smaller project or it's like a passion project that is is an appropriate distance from the studio. But then once they start like like in the case of Olivia Wilde, like they get traction and then they get a lot of money, and then with that money comes a lot of notes and a lot of interference, maybe which sort of if you're I mean, maybe an actor also would be would be more susceptible to uh not not being able to bat for themselves when it comes to you know reining in their their own production or or pushing back against producers and stuff um but i don't know how much of that occurs that's that's just me like you know i mean speculating to be fair to patrick wilson he's been in this franchise a while right yeah exactly in the the wand camp he's been in in if anybody knows at least two three insidious movies yeah, so, so he's been in all of them. Yeah, he's the he's the main character in all of the Insidious movies. Uh, he and even he even brings back Ty Simpkins. That's what I know. I made that note because Ty Simpkins. I realized this as I was looking at the credits for uh, for this movie, and I was like, oh yeah, that is really cool that Ty Simpkins has been. He was the little kid in the first one, which was thirteen years ago, and now he's grown up. He's like twenty five now or something, but he's still playing the same character. And there's just always something funny to me about, especially child actors that grow into their roles and then carry it on forward. It's like a it's like a link ladder thing with like boyhood where you know he you're basically acting in the same movie for 20 years or whatever um but he's also just like over the course there was that weird period in the 2010s like around the marvel era when he was just the token like little kid actor he was one of those where he showed up in iron man 3 as like he's the supporting child actor and then he shows up at the end of the marvel franchise for uh like you know the death of iron man or whatever and uh but he's all grown up oh yeah spoilers yeah spoilers if you haven't seen a six-year-old movie i'm sorry um (laughs) No, I love it too because, um, like, I in my head, I'm older now. Like, that's the other thing. We're aging, and so yeah. now we're seeing younger <laughs> actors grow in front of us. Yeah. And so I have to add Ty Simpkins to the list of like actors I've seen as tiny children uh-huh. who have then like grown. Like, so like Noah Jupe, uh, speaking of a quiet place, 
Yeah. Um, the young boy from that. And then he's been in, like, if you look, it's funny because you look at their filmographies and you're like, oh, if you're a good child actor, you're going to get some stellar roles. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like Noah Jeep went on to do uh, Ford v. Ferrari, uh, a couple other things. Sonny Sulik, who was in mid-90s, he was the lead in mid-90s, also just does the entire voice of Atreus for God, the God of War <laughs> video games. And they look exactly alike. It's so that's wild. Awesome. <laughs> so I feel like, in I my guess head, I'm goal. like, tr- I'm tracking every, I'm like, that's a child actor we're all going to know. Um the 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 precocious little kid from uh he has these big old glasses that's why i did this uh from haunting of hill house um also in um the conjuring the devil whatever made me do oh it. the devil made me do it uh yeah that precocious little like tiny child he's from dallas oh that's right i forgot about this when we talked about it yeah he uh he's a dallas guy yeah, yeah he's probably there's like... just like another child actor i'm like hell yeah dallas rep way to go there we go we got it we got a uh david uh, uh julian hilliard yeah is that yes him? julian, yeah, 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 julian yeah. hilliard i'm like so stoked for him i think his acting career is gonna take off the older like he's it's always this one this, is, it's, it's always this one face too like i feel like this started with like the uh the little vampire or whatever but it's just like these these kids who have like weirdly proportionate like their eyes are too big for their face and stuff like of course that yeah. kid's gonna be a great like child actor in his uh, I like in his IMDb picture actually okay I gotta give this kid mad props because he has, he's wearing a Daniel Johnston T-shirt for his IMDb profile picture that's actually really fucking sick what a cool kid all right you've got cool parents yeah. probably that's awesome yeah definitely uh, <laughs> um yeah Insidious I'm uh, I'm I'm excited to see it tonight we'll probably do like at least a, a quick review if not a full episode on it here in the next week or two. Um, as we get back into things here, uh, another big thing. Obviously, we can't ignore the big, giant explosion, gorilla, atomic thing in the room. I don't know the best way to phrase that, but Robinheimer weekend, man, it's coming up. I'm super excited. It's, the hype is like, real. <laughs> it's comically the movie event of the summer. If people had to, put it's like the movie, the movie event of the, the decade. <laughs> like it's it, gonna be. It's just. It's lightning in a bottle. That's, yeah. It's absolute lightning in a bottle for the studios. When they well, made the decision, I think it was like a year and a half ago or uh-huh. two years ago. They, the, 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 I remember because they announced the like theatrical release dates and I was like two and a half years ago, whenever, a long time ago. They we all realized immediately. Yet. Yeah. Like, I was like, that's... oh, hell yeah. And then of course <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's going to be important in like. 18 months like yeah 18 months from now people are going to be talking about this and sure enough like they start debuting trailers they start sharing stuff barbie goes head to head against oppenheimer and it is like the most viral thing there's so many memes it, it's perfect i i love the meme memification of it because every studio wishes they were this viral like right. no matter how good or how bad your movie is you go viral like that and you're gonna get more you're it's gonna bump your box office yeah it's also it's it's the thing of I, I think you put it perfectly like the 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 hype uh like the like the sort of the hype bubble that they're just feeding off of each other's hype and it's awesome um but the yeah the, the memes the, the one poster that i saw where it's like that artist that combined both posters and it just looks like it's 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 an amazing uh mashup of all of the characters of this weird like like tonally two movies that could not be more different that are somehow just like feeding and like exponentially into each other's hype it's i don't know uh, the, uh, it's amazing the, i i love like i've seen accounts where like they'll recolor an entire like like they'll recolor goodfellas but in like barbie pink yeah <laughs> so it's like goodfellas but they're all wearing like bright neon green and pink suits and stuff yeah are you gonna dress up for your screening of barbie that weekend I will likely not uh <laughs> for the Coward. podcast efforts i was telling travis this it's kind of wild in la where i live 
it, I think every single screening uh, at every hour in every theater will be sold out opening weekend for Barbie, <laughs> for sure. I, love I don't know how, I don't know what's going to happen with Oppenheimer, but the Barbie crowd is out of control in this town and i love it but it's like barbie lobbyists have just been like slyly campaigning <laughs> on every bus and every billboard like you should definitely go see this movie and then but it's also helps it's summertime in la too and it's the i mean what more like it, that is the barbie is the fictional universe of la essentially it's just the hyper the real version way, of it i know the only way barbie could have made more money is if they dropped it in uh like in pride month or something right it, I'll say this. I, Mary-Kate and I, months ago, went to a screening of Magic, the newest Magic Mike because we were like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and it was it was a rowdy screening, and it was literally just us, two other couples, and like a theater full of all kinds of LGBTQIA, like everybody. And the moment they show Barbie trailer, because this is a rowdy screening, everybody lost their damn minds. <laughs> and they sh- I, My favorite part is after, like the very end, because I guess they showed Oppenheimer before this. Like the trailer, and so at the very end, someone it gets real quiet, and someone just goes, "Fuck Oppenheimer, Barbie forever." <laughs> was it and the Mary uh, Kate has like that's like stuck in Mary Kate's head rent free. Fuck Oppenheimer. Was it the uh, was it the Hitchcock uh, Barbie trailer where they do two thousand two thousand one Space Odyssey? Yeah, I think, I think that, that was like it. the first one that came out. Right, it was such, that's such a good teaser because they were just leaning into. I don't know, man. I feel like yeah, that's part of Greta Gerwig's thing too. It's like leading into the 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 irony and meta conversation about like you know what is cinema and what is you know what is art in film, and being like you know what 2001 Space Odyssey Barbie. Let's, let's cross those streams and make it. I don't know. You just have uh, to think like tonally. It's just it's so it's they're so equally proportioned against each other that it's mm-hmm. like comical, right? Like Oppenheimer's this super serious like ethical thing about like the invention of the atomic bomb. We know how it ends, but we yeah. still like we need to know. And then and one of the Barbie, most serious conversations like, you can possibly have too, like oh, uh, portrayed yeah. by and, one and of the most serious the looking world. actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Change yeah. the modern world, and then we also get to have our have our cake and eat it too with some like neon glitter. Margot Robbie and like goofy Kennedy, Ryan Gosling, like <laughs> the, the the jokes are out of control. Like the vocabulary I, so of Ryan Gosling in interviews as he like it works Ken into every conversation. He's like, I'm just Kenning as hard as I can, and like I'm Ken. The Kennedy is real, and it's like like he and with with complete serious, like unironic like seriousness. It's so. Uh, I, I love him leaning into that as well. It's I feel like I mean Margot Robbie is obviously like perfect for that role, but. Ryan Gosling being cast as Ken and having a, a specific sort of irony about himself, like that. I feel like, like, uh, what was it the the Nice Guys the um, that he was in yeah. with, um, that, yeah, that with Russell Crowe. He's a uh, yeah, his because Ryan Gosling walks the line between being like I like him in action movies, um, I like him as an action you know star or actor, but he's he's just a funny dude as well. Like he's a he's a good looking leading man, but he's got comedy chops and it's awesome. Um, I yeah, and then think he's at his best when he's doing comedy. Yeah. Um, but then Oppenheimer too, like the, uh, I guess I made a lot of notes and stuff about, you know, Killian Murphy and Hoyt van Hoytema and you all You made a the, lot uh, of notes about Oppenheimer. You I know. I a lot of notes about Barbie. Travis. I know. <laughs> I think I just got, I went down a fucking like rabbit hole of reading. Cause obviously it's Hoytema coming back, right? We talk about Hoyt van Hoytema a lot when we did our episode on Nope and about he is the, you know, he's a beast when it comes to IMAX. He's the man who, who wrote the book on carrying giant fucking IMAX cameras on his shoulder to get these sort of Literally. handheld shots. Um, the other note, yeah, hey. that the, uh, production team invented a brand new technology for this film uh i black and white film stock didn't exist in 65 millimeter before uh oppenheimer and there are many scenes in this movie that are filmed in black and white so they made their own film stock to film this in imax on black and white 
um, for the purposes the, of this movie. Someone said the IMAX reel for Oppenheimer is like at least a hundred feet long or something. Or it it's like, like no, it's like eleven pounds. miles long. It's like it's miles long, and it, yeah, like it if weighs. If you were to like, stretch the entire reel out, it would be like as long the, as a half marathon. It would be as long as the blast radius of uh, the Fat Man bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. That's uh, deeply wild they also just <laughs> no. if you want to go Actually on as larger, far as I like think. yeah if you want to go on about how like nolan just does not fuck around he he i remember when they did it he said that they kind of were able to recreate the initial atomic explosion in a controlled environment with enough dynamite and like c4 like explosive devices now yeah that weren't just like full-blown atomic and he was like we don't we don't want to use CGI if we can help it. And so they're, now they're spreading an article that said he has no CGI in his film. Right. Which I think is... Which is... is like, he's, he's saying, like, there is no, like, green screen action scenes. Yeah. Like, everything is... There, there are still special effects, yeah. I think that's, that's the thing is, like, in modern sort of, uh, like, nomenclature, the idea... Like, C- CGI has become synonymous with, with special effects which or visual effects, and these are two different things. Like, obviously, we were... I, I was joking, like, leading up to, you know, this movie because it's Christopher Nolan, the man who famously crashes real planes into buildings for the purposes of getting a good shot. And it's, like, joking that he was going to set off an actual atomic bomb for this movie which in a way he kind of did he didn't set off an atomic bomb but to simulate the, the at least the visual aspect of what an atomic bomb looks like or the trinity test in, in uh, los alamos looked like uh, to the spectators at the time yeah you get enough fireworks together and you honestly that's like my wet dream is shooting off so many explosives at one time that it mimics the trinity test that's uh i can't think of anything that would be more fun for me than doing that um, except like it's it's so that I, that just sounds so nerve-wracking right if it's oh, yeah. practical you only get one you're like <laughs> we get one you can you imagine 70 different cameras you're you know like the pa on that set is probably like at least 100 miles away like redirecting traffic like yeah don't go there just trust me don't go there <laughs> And meanwhile, in the background, you just see the mushroom cloud shooting up. I'm just like, yeah, that's that's Nolan. He's he's doing it over there. That's it's so awesome. Exactly. Um, the other thing about this is like, yeah, the idea of uh, like we talked about Killian Murphy a lot in the episode we just did recently on uh, 28 Days Later, um, which was sort of you know kind of his breakout role um, in a zombie movie. And um, it kind of yeah, I didn't realize until I was reading this article that I linked that uh, yeah, he hasn't been a leading man in any of Nolan's films. Um, he's been uh, he's been acting with Nolan for you know the past decade and a half or twenty years or so, uh, ever since um, the first Batman movies. But he's always been a supporting actor, um, and the idea of him like you know he's he he mentions in that article about being very humble and being like you know obviously I'm here I'm a I'm a tool for this director and this you know screen this artist to use um as an actor and like i'll I'll take whatever role i can get and be happy about it but then secretly being like really just being desperately like wanting to be a leading man and this is probably like i feel like i don't know it might be hyperbolic to say that this is going to be like one of the most significant films of nolan's like filmography and i think so because i feel like nolan is one of those directors who when he has existing material and existing structure to to base his film upon is when he shines the best. I think the, you know, missteps are sort of like the less uh, well-received movies of his, you know, Tenet or the ones that are confusingly like Inception stuff or that are, you know, original scripts and original stories. Um, Memento, I think, is maybe more successful on that. But, like, those are, those can be sort of maybe um, less accessible for audiences because of their just the complicated nature of them. But when he's doing movies like this, or even like the Batman movies, right, where it's like he has existing material to draw upon or like, you know, his his other historical films, um, I think this is where he like shines the best. And I'm super excited to see like 
within the framework of obviously, you know, a story that's written in history, like how he fleshes out the the characters and the character traits and the the narrative aspects of this very, very, this unimaginably important thing um, in the form of film. It's, uh, I don't know, it's crazy, man. I know. It's good to see Murphy and Nolan doing something big together. Like, yeah. you know, there's just, there's so few, like, actor-director combos that I or are there like do you think there are, are there a lot or are there a little because i feel you know, we argue like oh they always use this person or this thing or they're always this way you know yeah and the ones that i put there right like so like how often do we other see like other relationships like this in film because most of the time you have a director and their leading man at least like that's what that's the way it seems like you know we talked about like the rainy camp bruce campbell thing we have like the scorsese and his de niro or dicaprio you know he moved on he a man whose career has been has spent been so long it spanned the the acting careers of two like huge actors uh and he still uses them in his movies to this day um yeah i've tried yeah i was trying to think of other examples because you have like yeah and then you know anderson with his like ensemble casts between the murray and uh, bill murray and the wilson brothers and um I feel like this Jason is something Schwartzman. like. I mean, Wes yeah, Anderson Jason. and Jason Schwartzman have been making movies for like yeah. decades now. Because, mm-hmm. um, especially in the example of like Rami Campbell, uh, I feel like that's something where when you read about just the origins of their careers as well, it's kind of like a thing where it, it's just like who do you have access to? Like who, who, who is around you that is like willing to be in your movies essentially? And then sometimes those people end up turning into stars themselves. Um, Speaking, but, of, I mean, going going off the Barbie Oppenheimer theme, I think uh-huh. like Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan could be considered. Yeah. I know she's not in this Barbie movie or that we know of, but mm-hmm. I do think like there was yeah a, between like, Lady Bird and Little Women, where and... They, yeah, where they were just like yeah, that was it. They they're they're like the perfect pair, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess it makes sense. Like when you're, I mean, when I, you, you see interviews of those actors talking about their relationship with any particular director, it's like there is a sense of, you know, obviously, like when you're making a film, a, a very difficult thing to do, there's this level of trust and understanding that comes along with working with somebody that you've worked with before. Um, and then understanding how they realize a vision and how to work with them. And every director is different and like how, you know, how those movies eventually get made. Um, pointing out Scorsese uh, and DiCaprio, it's like, you you know you have this guy who is like the goes up like we mentioned in our call yesterday going up to bat for for the industry and cinema overall and basically like you know kind of rescuing um the theater uh and also having a very intense relationship with the art form itself and actors like DiCaprio and De Niro De Niro who like kind of define the the art form uh, and the medium um do you want to yeah so what was it what was the note you said about uh scorsese uh basically working with turner classic movies to movies to uh, so what happened was um david zaslav the town's favorite uh villain because he's just such a public figure um basically cut uh like a half of the staff of turner classic movies like the people who work behind the scenes to keep tcm running broadcast it like acquire content and all that cut the staff in half and that kind of prompted at least one or a bunch of the CEO, like C-suite and like top level people to leave. They were like, this is not going to work out for us. And everybody panicked. Um, so people like even this was kind of wild. It's like Ryan Reynolds was tweeting, like, don't kill TCM. Like that was mm-hmm. my favorite channel growing up. Um, and so I think with it, like that news happened. And within several hours, more articles came out that immediately Scorsese, Christopher Nolan, Steven Spielberg, Paul Thomas Anderson were on the phone with David Zaslav like you got to fix this. You can't you can't cut TCM. You just can't get rid of this. It's too valuable, it's too important. Um and it does. 
I, I remember hearing that TCM makes money, so it is a money maker. It, it's just frustrating to see yeah. something that's that feels like oh, it's old, it's not relevant, like no one's going to use it, and, and so like yeah. let's just cast it off. But then the the old guard kind of steps up on its behalf, uh, and ultimately ended up getting uh, one of the old CEOs um, or one of the older like people who resigned, brought them back on to lead the company and like bolster the staff just a little bit. But it was just such a public snafu that immediately like big big names came in. You know the god, like all these like grandpas of cinema, right? Tarantino, and <laughs> yeah, Spielberg, yeah, exactly. and PTA. Like, there's photos of them like talking to Zaslav, like on the red carpet for some other movie premiere, and like obviously they have David Zaslav's phone number in there. Yeah, so they can get that in a heartbeat. And what a, went what a, to bat and kind of kept TCM uh, staffed at least. Yeah. Hey, it's Travis. Uh, we hope you guys are enjoying the episode. And if you guys have any suggestions for movies that you think we should watch or comments about the episodes, please email me at scariesundayscaries at gmail.com. Uh, we love hearing back from you guys, and we look forward to it. Thanks. And it's that thing that we're, I feel like more publicly is happening recently with things like, you know, the, the various mergers that are happening on the streaming platforms of of the the sort of like fickleness with which these corporate entities are sort of discarding very like art and and everything and like that sort of kind of leads into the 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 other issue that we're kind of like facing right now the uh, hot labor summer right um the, and you the, like that Have I you like your that headline yet no I haven't uh, so, so that's like... what they're calling it in the newspapers in oh LA gosh. a lot of different unions have gone on strike in the last six seven months. Um, like we had teacher support staff go on strike back in March. Uh, the writers went on strike in May and right now hotel workers went on a three day strike and they're probably going to strike again. Um, and so that maybe the actors, they think SAG after may go on strike, depending on negotiations that can negotiations for them conclude in like three or four days. Um, so in mm. LA, it's, they call it hot labor summer because everybody's been going on strike. <laughs> you love it, man. I love I love seeing it though, and it's uh, so if, like we might dig in uh, a little bit more deeply later on uh, into the the current writers' strike and uh, the 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 exact sort of uh, grievances that are being expressed by writers and um, what they're asking for. Uh, but just from like a like a bird's eye view, um, I kind of pulled I pulled up this article that's uh, about you know a, a brief history of the Hollywood writer strikes um, from IndieWire that kind of talks about. You you know how how long this is uh, how many writer strikes there have been like when they've happened and why they've happened um the quote from the article too over there that says you know the the uh, the wga has gone on strike eight times since forming in 1933 uh, most recently in 2007 uh, many of the strikes were tied to emerging technologies that threatened to fundamentally alter the way hollywood distributes entertainment uh, and were ultimately resolved once the guild felt that writers had been assured an appropriately sized slice of the new pie um, and i think what comes along with this is is you know it's the general problem that that occurs with you know the difficult thing of of commodifying art right where it's you know we unfortunately live in a society where it's like you know people have to make money and because of that like we get these weird problems like um like how do you copyright music right how do you copyright like a a melody and then with film and with writing how do you make sure that the people who contribute their their skills and their creativity and art um to this very very profitable industry uh are appropriately compensated um the thing that i kind of like took away from that article that was really interesting to me is how uh what i was telling you yesterday how it seems like 
throughout history since you know the first couple of writer strikes and especially during like the uh the birth of uh, physical media and home cassettes um writers are smart people and it turns out that they're usually uh, ahead of the game when it comes to to seeing when they there's a there's a chance they're going to get the wool pull or you know get screwed over by the industry and by the people who you know who fund it and and move the money around um notably you know back in in the 70s as you know cassette tapes and stuff were sort of coming about that's when a, another writer strike writer strike occurred to make sure that um the writers who who wrote the scripts and contributed to the the plots and stories of those movies that were then being sold for home media and this this entirely new market um, were going to be appropriately compensated for for all of that home media and all those sales. Um, it goes all the way back to the very first uh, some of the very first writer strikes back in the you know in the fifties. The idea of writers getting residuals at all for media um, that was uh, you know things going on to, into television, um, and then most recently in, in two thousand seven and two thousand eight, the idea of um, you know the advent of streaming and the idea that there was going to be this entire, entirely new medium and home platform where people are going to be able to access movies, film, and television. And the idea, it's like, well, we want to make sure we're getting uh, our slice of that pie as well, because this is obviously going to be a really, really big thing. And the smart writers at the time, understanding that they need to make ensure that they're protected and uh, getting getting what they deserve uh, for you know this next wave of, uh, of of income or revenue for for the industry. Um, and for clarity's sake, actually, for history-wise, um, the writers, they negotiate every three years. So the last chance they had to negotiate was in 2020. Um, and the negotiations usually start around April or May. And April and May in 2020 was a terrible time to be negotiating for labor because you couldn't go on strike <laughs> as a like an entertainment worker and look like the good guy. Like, yeah. Unless you were like a hospital worker or a restaurant worker, like you, you, you were not doing essential work, and you, it was not important to society at the time. So they pushed these deliberations. They just took the deal. They kept what was that they already had, and they pushed the deliberations to 2023. Um, and so they had three years of just sitting and simmering on some of the stuff that they were ready to go up the bat for. And in those three years, things things developed even worse than they had anticipated. Obviously, streaming services started like blowing up more. Uh, and the AI conversation changed radically within the last, even just the last, you know, nine to 10 months yeah, has been, been like a very, very different world mm-hmm. um, that they were like fortunate to have this conversation and go into negotiations on. Um, and when they do, they're the first ones to go to go to, go to negotiate. And writers are historically undersold. Everybody thinks like anybody can do the writer's job. Uh, that's <laughs> not true. Which is kind of the it problem we're very, facing right now. It's like with the AI very stuff. Demanding. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's funny because the, they often say the directors and the actors have the highest leverage because you literally can't do this without them. But like a producer could quote, write a movie. Um, mm-hmm. So the writers get to be the guinea pigs and then they go up to bat. This is like, they say, this is like what I've been hearing by all the, all the union people. They laugh. The WGA people are always like, yep, the WGA goes on strike. The DGA never goes on strike. I think the last time they went on strike, it was for three hours. Because um, they are they get more money. They make more yeah. stuff. They have a little more like sway. And there's less of them. So they're easier to organize. And then they were saying the SAG after stuff usually gets what they want. Because they're right. the biggest union. And you can't do anything with And they're also the, the face of the industry, too, I think. And that's exactly. another big aspect of it. Um, when, so notably, too, like... like Writers always have the least amount of leverage, but they're the first ones to negotiate. And so it's just like painful because they negotiate and then they watch their leverage like get chipped away when the DGA caves. And now they're like praying that SAG AFTRA strikes so they can be like, we care. And SAG AFTRA has, they, all these unions have the same problems. They're all mm-hmm. struggling to get sli- like better revenue slices, 
um, they're treating a lot of this stuff. Like the problem is they're seeing tech companies treat uh, entertainment like a tech company. Exactly. And that means like creating silos, like not bringing, you know, like writers aren't getting on set. Directors are not, you know, they're like trying to like make every part of this process as much of a conveyor belt as possible. And when you do something like that, you're just going to start cutting out more and more profit for other people which is what this whole thing has been leading to. So yeah. that's my short, short, yeah. very short. <laughs> like I said, we, we might spend an entire uh, you know, I've been conversation on the, I go on digging I have, into it. I've, I've been on the picket lines. I've gone out to the studios. It's been nothing but a, a blast. I mean, it's a really good way to get fit. You just walk around for three hours yeah. in a circle. <laughs> um, but it's a great way to meet people. And I have had nothing but positive experiences with the people who are striking. So if you do not live in LA and you're like, why are the writers striking? Um, I guarantee you they are, they are, they're worth their money. They're salt of the earth. They're working just as hard. It would be like if all the waiters that you knew went on strike cause they started getting underpaid. Like this is like, don't listen to whatever you're hearing that says like, Oh, these entitled writers need their yeah. need more money than they already make. Like, no, they're not making enough money and yeah. they're not mean. They're being very nice. There's yeah. like no, no, there's no group, but it is yeah. one. Production is down to zero percent in the city mm-hmm. of LA, and the um the city council just issued a declaration urging the AMPTP to make a deal because the whole city's economy is suffering because everything from it all relies on that. Yeah, yep, it's built around the <laughs> film industry, and the film industry is at a standstill. I yeah. everybody's broke. It's like yep. wild. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's you know we're so we're so cultured in in the country that we live in to uh, kind of be against any kind of labor movement at all, and I think that that's a that's a really bad thing. And I think that the more people who uh, kind of just generally side on the side of labor movements are uh, will be a better thing. And hopefully that's what we see more of that just in the future say, in in, in, just, in every industry. As a, as a fun anecdote, this summer I'm working as a lifeguard, but I work yeah. for uh, this, a city, and I'm in a union, and I didn't even sign up. You just get the job, and then you kind of, like, get filtered into a union, and they're really, really strict. The, the bosses and stuff are strict about your hours, like, how often you work, what you do. Uh, they wouldn't let me lift, like, water bottles, and that was three <laughs> minutes till my shift started. They were like, no. You get to, like, when your shift ends, and they will, like, kick you out the door. I, I was, like, joking. I don't think this is true, but I could be performing CPR, and they'd be like, oh, you hit your hours. Like, go. <laughs> stop that that's right not now. true we would <laughs> save yeah. a life there's yeah. there's yeah. no reason not to save a life but it's it's nice to feel protected and yeah. i think that's really cool and i'm excited to see i hope someday i'm in the union for wga that i get to go like help you know fight for other writers and stuff exactly yeah we we Anyways. support our writers um the other thing uh so uh here obviously the uh, killers of the flower moon trailer uh dropped recently uh scorsese's newest movie um on the again on the topic of scorsese uh we talked about it yesterday i you know so I, I read this book a few years ago um it's a um a, a, tr- a non-fiction uh book um written by uh david gran uh, a journalist who covered uh the basically the um uh, the the horrible killings of of members of the Osage tribe who very, at the very beginning of the 1900s uh, discovered that the reservation that they had been relegated to by the federal government uh, contained or was built on above huge oil reserves and overnight um, an interesting note in the book is you know talks about how the members of this tribe essentially became per capita some of the most if not the most wealthy people in the country at the time um, they discovered oil on their land and overnight went from being uh, you know 
not a uh, you know, native tribe, a native tribe, not in really in great straits, uh, to being in- incredibly uh, like obscenely wealthy. Uh, and it made a lot of the white rural farmers that were living around them in Oklahoma extremely angry. Um, the plot of this movie is super fascinating, or the plot of the, plot of the book and what I assume will be the plot of the movie is super fascinating. Um, it's a it, it's it's a very it's a murder mystery essentially, and talks about some of the origins of like the FBI and stuff, and uh, the investigations of these killings. Um, it ooh, looks ooh, amazing. The FBI, yeah, ooh, that's awkward. Yeah, right. Um, I just want to go on record. Uh, Oklahoma, the state, is o for two when it comes to minorities getting a great <laughs> influx of wealth and white people being okay with it. Yeah, yep. <laughs> it's uh. Yeah, and then the the result of this too isn't great either. It's like there's one man who gets prosecuted in the end, I think, and then he and then kind of everybody else kind of gets off, and it's a it's a bummer. Um, but yeah, the DiCaprio coming back to work with Scorsese. Um, we've got um, uh, a native Os- uh, a member of the Osage tribe, uh, Lily Gladstone, who plays Molly in the film. Um, we got Jesse Plemons, Brendan Fraser coming in. Um, it's a fucking murderer's row uh, of of actors here. Um, I'm super excited to see Brendan Fraser sort of like, I guess this is his most immediate role after uh, The Whale, right? Um, after yeah, winning Best yeah. Actor. Because um, he's, um, he's, he's te- I think he shot the two back to back, like pretty mm-hmm. close, because so, he's technically still a little bulky. Not that mm-hmm. that like, he should not be bulky, but that's if people are like, oh, he's still kind of like what he was. He shot The Whale and then went into Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So... Yeah. And the, uh, to be clear, this is uh, the one thing I'm really excited about. I know you're probably going to mention it, but I'm going to get ahead of you. Is that mm-hmm. um, Scorsese was very, very intentional uh, about how he who he worked with. Um, so the entire right. crew uh, includes is all Indigenous Americans, members of the Osage Nation, and he. You know, they would host regular meetings and went over a lot of the things that they were going to shoot, like basically walk this thing beginning middle and end through the like the people who should be gatekeeping a lot of that um the culture that's going to be represented on screen and so it's kind of like almost laughable we didn't do this sooner but definitely a great example of like leading by like leading by example um that like you can kind of like you can do this and it's not a bank breaker it's not insane um and you're going to make quality work i mean martin scorsese is in oklahoma shooting a Martin Scorsese movie, you get that kind of credit under your belt and you're, you're set, you know? So it's, it's really exciting to see that kind of stuff happening. Um, and, and giving back to the boon to Oklahoma's economy. Yeah. And giving back to the communities that, you know, if you're, if you're going to create, you know, a, a, a piece of film and uh, profit off of it, and you want to make sure that the, you know, that profit and, and a lot of the recognition goes into the the community that, that the film is based on the story, who My, the story uh, is about. <laughs> Right. My aunt lives in Oklahoma City and she was kind of like, because she knows I work in film, so she wants me to be successful. She was like, oh, why don't you come and work on that, 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 that uh, who's that guy? The Scorblazy or whatever. He's making <laughs> yeah, let me just walk there. on over there. Yeah. I'll yeah, just drive and on over and work with Scorblazy. Like, no what? big deal. I think they're done. <laughs> like, this is when I lived in Dallas. I was like, I think they're done shooting. Like, Aunt Marybeth, they're not, they're not doing that anymore. And two, I am not going to be employed on that unless i like know somebody knows somebody and that's okay that's really yeah. okay yeah it, that's the way it should be uh i was interested so a, yeah. a, a, a film critic who i who i trust a lot um, whose opinion i think aligns lines with mine a lot david elric uh, uh wrote of the movie that scorsese turns killers of the flower moon into the kind of story that he can still tell better than anyone else a story about greed corruption and the modeled soul of a country that was born from the belief that it belonged to anyone callous enough to take it um this just looks like another awesome grave very interesting uh movie that i'm super excited to see when it comes out in october um it, also- and it's a 
a joint production. It's Apple TV mm-hmm. and Paramount. Paramount that, does the production, but Apple TV will be doing the streaming for it. Yeah, that that, that surprised me. I, when I was like looking at the details of it, I had no idea that it was associated with Apple at all. Um, which will be again. Yeah, so they're Apple, also going to Apple's cutting deals. Yeah, man, they're doing a follow up too. So uh, David Grant has another uh, book that he wrote about a uh, shipwreck survival story called The Wager that Scorsese is also going to be adapting into a film, which I think is going to be super awesome. I want to try to grab that book soon and uh, and see what it's all about. Um, yeah, excited about that. I think it's going to be a great movie and excited to see it here uh, in the fall. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, yeah, so okay, this fucking article. Uh, Travis, <laughs> it's actually, don't, don't pick a fight. Don't do uh, it. It's fine. I, it's actually like I'm not as, I don't know, the this uh, Variety article, which is kind of cataloging the best horror films of uh, 2023 so far. Uh, it's got some It's got some hot takes in here. It's got, but it's got some reasonable takes too. Like it's a pretty like when you actually kind of like go through the, the you know, point by point it's it's not as surprising as as you would think you know they're including well it's a um, very early list too yeah because there's still half the year to go and, and i feel like in the fall horror, obviously yeah it's gonna there, be there's some festival horror pieces that might go straight to shutter that are gonna be mm-hmm. absolute gems there's always yeah. like one or two that come out of things like fantasia fest fantastic fest toronto Mm-hmm. after dark like all that stuff that like people are like they sit up more when they when they hear about the success that some of those things have had and Not i think like the studio horror yeah and that, that seems to be like the natural uh sort of life cycle of those and especially like indie horror and stuff as they go to festivals uh in the fall yeah. but there are i mean there's some obvious ones on here that you know so we got the legacy franchise sequel scream six um they put that on there evil dead rise obviously uh which we got to spend some time talking about at some point um really enjoyed uh, infinity pool which we you know talked about a lot and the uh, the moistest movie of the year probably um and they also put uh interestingly uh, some pretty high like th- th- that's what interested me about the take in this article is uh putting bo is afraid and skin and at the top uh kind of sort of holding up the auteur film stuff of the year um skin and as as its number as their number one horror piece of the year is an interesting choice but it's a uh, like I said, I've, I've come full... I can't remember the last conversation we had about this and how, you know, sort of adamant I was about it, but I've come full circle on it. I, I don't know. It's it's fine. I, it wasn't exactly the best experience for me. I didn't enjoy it either time, either of the three times I watched it. Um, but I, I think I told you, like... <laughs> I love your commitment. You're like you're like so determined to love this movie. You watched it at least three times. You're like, what am I not getting that everyone else is? I tried because I tried giving it like the different experiences. I watched it on my laptop in the dark at three a.m. I watched it in a theater. I watched it. You know, I was trying to like really. I was trying to get it to scare me. I was trying to get it to like you know. But I just that's you know again not to rag on it again. I just got bored. That was that was the thing. Maybe my attention span is too short. Um, but I like I said. I think that's what I told you yesterday. I've come. I've kind of come full circle on that where I look at it as more. It is. It is a cool piece of art. Like it is interesting and maybe it's not an example of a um a good movie but it is it is an interesting piece of visual media um kind of like i mean like when we talk about david lynch films and stuff right where we talk about you know a race ahead blue velvet our conversation on the holland drive um on the spectrum of you know of of candy cinema to difficult art pieces you know they're that's why it's a spectrum and lynch falls somewhere in there where he you know at least he makes movies that have somewhat of a cohesive plot sometimes um and they're you know interesting and beautiful but they can also be seen maybe more as like art pieces rather than you know actual movies or films or features which you know it's a very specific medium um and this too it's it's 100 minutes long and it was maybe didn't need to be but that's that's not for me to decide that that's what kyle edward ball wanted to make and that's what he did and it was it's been and for anything, it's gotten a lot of people's attention, and uh, this Variety article thinks it's the best uh, horror film of the year so far, which is, that's fine. Um, I, I will go on record, I haven't seen Skin of Marink, so I'm, I'm uh, I know, abstaining. 
Yeah, we're yeah we're relying solely on my very skewed uh, uh, opinion of it, which is fine. It's a uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's whatever. Uh, but I also like the the the, the honorable mention to uh, our 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 favorite film of the year, M three again, um, which I still think was awesome. Uh, I love. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like it. so. I was listening to this podcast episode with a guy who runs uh, basically like cinema going analytics Mm -hmm. and they kind of asked him like, Oh, what's, what brings in the Gen Z? And they were saying it's like horror comedy. Mm -hmm. And they were saying like M3 did good numbers for Gen Z audiences. Cause you know, we can't like, you have to get new audiences. You can't just have the same old people. Um, But they were saying that they, they really do show up for like, obviously the studio fair can kind of drag, like they were just born and raised in Marvel. So sometimes they'll, they'll invest and they'll go, but they love like a very viral, very wacky, very like spooky, but also hilarious. Like bodies, bodies, bodies is something that they would love. Um, M3gan, um, just something that just says, like it says camp. It can be like, they love camp. Um, So I think that's like kind of interesting to me. I really like that about like, and I think this is something like why I, I you know, like I said, I, I reluctantly like Skinner Marink in, in that way because it does sort of, Skinner Marink is an example of something that does also kind of capture that where it's the, um, like the absurdist thing that is like really sort of the, you know, whenever I look at like TikTok horror or like, you know, social media horror, like these like little micro films and stuff that people are making, which I think is really cool. I think it's so awesome that like, obviously now it's never been easier to have access to like, you know, creating a piece of visual media. Um, and it's the, yeah, the weird absurdist, you know, camp, uh, sort of uncanny valley kind of thing that, you know, sort of permeates a lot of that that corner of, of social media there's this really really awesome i gotta look it up in a second and maybe we can like uh you know talk to him at some point and get him on a phone call but there's this one guy who does like um micro horror shorts on tiktok and instagram um i think i've seen his... some of those yeah i might have sent you a couple yeah so this guy spencer lackey does uh like Spang- spanger look ray on uh, Instagram, um, does these like like eight ten second little micro shorts, and they're just little. They're basically just little bottle jump scares, but that kind of stuff. I'm like, that's that's awesome. That's so creative, and it's such an interesting. Like you can just crank out, you know, dozens of those in in a couple of months, and they're they're so fun. But there's something about that. Like I think that is maybe the direction of yeah the younger audience, like the next audience uh, for horror. Um, these weird sort of mind bending kind of tales are are really popular. Um, also, I didn't. I'd never heard the term "wraparound tale." I don't know why. That's uh, like in reference to *Evil Dead Rise*, which is a movie that starts at its ending. Um, yeah, right. That's interesting. Funny. Yeah. I did finally see it. I watched *Evil Dead Rise* a couple weeks ago. Yeah, we need to do a whole, maybe a whole episode on it. But uh, what's your, uh, what's your, your uh, surface level take or your, uh, you your quick takeaway? I'm having a blast. I, yeah. Yeah. Great. Look, no I fucking notes. loved it. I, I'm cool. I'm gonna ride this train. Yeah, no, I loved it. I think it was a great spiritual successor to the franchise. Uh, it's uh, it, it captures the the, the the gleeful goriness of the originals, uh, and it is also pretty scary, like the 2013 one. It's got some pretty like horrific imagery and stuff in there, but is I love, just bonkers. I love, I'll say I love a properly budgeted bottle horror movie. It's right. Because like, people often think, like, oh, we can make a movie. It just has to be in one location, like a couple rooms. It doesn't, not just like one space, but like a couple rooms. And we can kind of do it cheap and easy. But then I'm always like, this is missing something. Like, right. it, it feels obvious that we know you only had, like, one location. Right. Um, and so I just, I, like, some of the, I think sometimes the answer to that is, like, is just bump the budget up. Like, get get more 
stuff in that space or like you have to right. have like the perfect space and so yeah if there's anything there were some Dead effects Rise they tells did me is like is really like you, you find the hill you want to die on like the elevator stuff that was yeah. like way <laughs> way expensive but the rest is like yeah like make it a sick ass like wildly broken down kind of not quite condo in like a sketchy part of la you know yeah yeah, there were some gimmicks in there that just they were they were so amazing to me. Some of the the, the I have seen the cheese the... grater scene. I want to go on record. <laughs> the, everyone's joking about cheese graters now. I actually expected worse. That yeah, wasn't even like the heard... worst part of it. I feel like I feel like there were so I many know. other parts that were like way more jarring when than the glass cheese grater. Was when yeah. I was like, Ooh. oh, that's that's rough. And Stephanie, man, Stephanie is my new favorite. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so great. Um, it was good. That, it was a really, really good movie. I yeah. wouldn't let Mary Kate watch it because she's blood shy, but all the gore hounds are going to love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, there's a couple of things. We, yeah, we have some other stuff to talk about maybe for like uh, next time we get get together here. Um, but then obviously like uh, kind of acknowledging the, the, the big gorilla in the room that's not a, a big exploding bomb. Um, why the hiatus, right? Uh, so we, we took a little break this year. Uh, I uh, took on a new job as well, uh, got really busy, and the process of recording, editing, posting, and doing all the things that go into... Uh, Making this is uh, is very time consuming, um, so I decided to take a little bit of a break to uh, to kind of take care of making some money after I kind of lost a lot of money at the beginning of the year uh, being out of work. Um, so that's why we took a little break. But hopefully, the idea we we've made a lot of plans and uh, have a lot of really cool stuff sort of in the works. Uh, we've got t-shirts, stickers, uh, some other ideas for production stuff that we're doing this year um as far as our online presence and recordings and then also we just like talking about movies and so i'm really excited to to get together with my friends again and talk about movies and go see movies and get spooky and and do fun stuff like that um we'll probably explore more of that stuff in detail (laughs) in other candid conversations uh that come down the line um as we start covering the rest of our series uh but as of this episode you will have heard i think the return of the living dead episode uh that drops tomorrow uh in our time and then uh, we have some more episodes coming out after that which will be really fun uh but yeah anything else oh, yeah baby We're anything back, else going on baby. in your life daniel <laughs> i i'm like i told you i'm an la city lifeguard i am networking i'm going to the, the picket lines when i can and i yeah that's it i'm just i'm staying busy i have some good friends that i think would be really fun for the podcast i've brought on so for for everyone uh Travis does all the hard work. I just do the fun part where I talk to people and then I'm like, oh, have you tried this podcast? You should like come and talk about horror movies for an hour or two. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, by the way, Travis, they're just showing up now. So Travis is a saint and I take advantage of it all the time. But I'm excited to be over here on the West Coast because I'm really, really hopeful we get some really cool people on. Some people that have some exciting behind the scenes experience and some people who do some other heavy lifting. Things like marketing which i talk about all the time um mm-hmm. so i am ho- i'm glad to have a. I want to get a marketer on so sh- they can tell you more about how what you see impacts <laughs> how you watch i'm so um, excited i actually i had dinner with uh or i met her at a party and we were laughing she was telling me about um i forget what oh um the J- malignant we were talking about malignant oh, she yeah. said like <laughs> it was marketed as a horror movie yeah and then because she's a big horror fan and she was like but it's 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 like not that horrific so yeah. she was like disappointed by the marketing of the film because she yeah. got 
she got tricked right she got marketed too yeah she got um, bait and switched yeah that was, I think that was our whole conversation so, about that movie too i still i fucking love that movie but yeah it was definitely yeah it, it was definitely marketed as something different than it ended up being but yeah we're excited so, uh we got a lot of people other yeah. other guests and stuff for this year um uh, various directors and other people within the industry that hopefully that we re- reached out to who hopefully will be nice enough to come and talk with us so we'll see i hope you guys have a good week a uh, good weekend and uh, i can't for, wait for you to listen to more sunday scaries bye <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Sunday scaries. Get spooked. <laughs> Is that the new thing?